welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Okay, let's say I've taken that in. I like what Gary Stewart is saying. I believe in him. I want to study under his tutelage. I go through the accelerator program. I get all the bells and whistles and attention and mentors and advisors and community that comes with that, all the accoutrements. And now I've graduated. I have my demo day. Hmm. What happens after demo day? Because that's what a lot of folks want to talk about too. Okay, we great, had the program. I don't know if there's ongoing support, but what am I going to be equipped and prepared to do when I graduate? Is the thrill still there? Like what, what headspace am I going to be in? And will people notice a difference other than me updating my LinkedIn? Yeah, I mean, so I don't really think about it in terms of a demo day, you know, and I think like as tech stars, you know, people can contradict me if they want. There's more to the relationship than simply that. It's not about like a graduation ceremony. Our job is to help founders stay alive, particularly black and Latino companies. Like the number one reason that companies die is they're out of capital. White, black, Latino, Asian, whatever you are, that's the number one reason. I think it's like 38% of companies, something like that, die because they run out of capital. That's the number one reason. It's always been. So number one thing that we have to help is companies get money. And we're not going to focus on mentorship as the kind of exclusive benefit of the program. For me, especially focusing on underrepresented founders, show me the money. Again, can't guarantee every founder is going to get funded because at the end of the day, as an accelerator, what you can do is you can kind of introduce two people that might want to get married. You can't force them to get married. All you can do is say, hey, I think you two have a lot in common. Is there chemistry? Depends on them. I'm not even in the conversations at that point, nor do I want to be, but I can make the introductions. And so the program is really going to be focused on doing a lot of like investor speed dating. So I think like I want to do every single week an investor who's interested in our target demographics or our target verticals, which are health tech, ed tech, fintech, and health and beauty, an investor who's focusing on, on one of those or some intersection of those comes in and says, hey, I want to talk to your startups. I want to give them three minutes of pitch. I'll give them 10 minutes of feedback. And the ones that I like, I'll stay in touch with. And then it's up to the founder to make a good enough impression so that you're one of the ones that someone wants to stay in touch with, knowing that we've done the curation to make sure that there's at least some possibility of fit. Similarly, I want to do a lot of investor dinners, probably like once every two weeks or something like that, where it's an informal gathering, where we, again, focus on the investors who are interested in our target demographics or verticals at stage. Everyone will do like a one-minute pitch at the beginning, but then afterwards, it's just like, have fun, build relationships. So I think the, what I think about my role as being is like facilitating access to social and financial capital. I'm a facilitator an intermediary. That's it. Can we guarantee that people are going to get money? No. Can we guarantee that investors are going to love what they're doing? Absolutely not. But can we help founders that right now feel that the doors are locked, begin to start to think that they're a little bit more open because of tech stars? That's my job. And so that's what they will uh, get from the program. And then whether or not founders are able to cultivate and maintain those relationships afterwards depends on them. I can't maintain a relationship for you. Any more than if I introduce you to someone I think could be your future husband or wife, all I can do is make the introduction. After that, make sure you come with your A-game and make sure that you keep that person hooked for the long run. I love it. I love it. Okay. Big money, Gary. <laughs> We've come to the accelerator. We got to the bag. Let's say we get a million dollars. And we ask this of almost all of the guests mm -hmm. who come on. 
you have a million dollars. Let's say no strings attached to this money, though. It's just coming to you. You have it to deploy so that you can stay alive long enough to build your vision and your dream with your super thinker and super builder. If I have a million dollars in the bank that I didn't have yesterday, how should I go about allocating that money or thinking about allocating it? What are some of the mistakes that you've seen when people spin where they shouldn't or even just the cadence and velocity of the spend and how they how they spread it out among their team? Okay, wow. So that's like a lot. I think of like entrepreneurship, almost like you can tell I like tennis, but like in any sort of, you know, let's say the World Cup is going on right now. Every funding round is only focused on helping you get to the next round. So you can have your eye on the finals, but like if you listen to any of the tennis players or athletes, they're like, just play the ball and play the round that you're in. Try to make sure that you're winning the round that you're in. So I think the number one thing if you're a founder is raise enough money so that you can get to the next round. You know, so if I'm like at a pre-seed, the question is, okay, so I should raise enough money that's going to last me for like about 18 to 24 months. Now with the current crisis, maybe even longer because it's harder to raise money. So if you can get it, take as much as you can. But the real goal is not to get to the finish line. It's just to get to the next round. And you need to identify what are the milestones that you would need to hit to be able to get to the next round. I always think about it like Super Mario. You have to kind of like do some things and then all of a sudden you go to like the second level and the third level and the fourth level. That's entrepreneurship. Those levels are called pre-seed, seed, series A, series B. Every level has certain rules, certain internal logics, but your goal is to just make sure that you know what you need to do to get to the next round. And the money that you're raising is only to get to the next round. So what are those rounds, pre-seed? I mean, because those, the numbers around that have changed even in the last four years. So at different levels, what is required, like they say at Series A, you need product market fit. What do you need at Series B? How do you view those different tiers? I view the different tiers as being tied to the fact that fundamentally investors don't like risk, even if they are venture capitalists. Essentially, each round is just kind of defined by the amount of risk that is tied to the company. So I think pre-seed is like, okay, we still don't really have customer validation that much, but maybe we have like a product, a really good idea, the beginnings of some sort of a team. Okay, then maybe we get to seed and we start to get like more maturity in terms of customer validation. And you're right, like those particular metrics may differ by segment, meaning by verticals so or by industry, if you're B2B, B2C, health tech, ed tech, whatever. But I think the general idea is how risky is this, right? If it's pre-seed, it's really risky. Like there's not really that much there. We don't have like any historical data that's really going to be able to allow us to kind of figure out or to kind of build these models that like these investors seem to really like, right? If you're seed, maybe you have a little bit more data. You have like a product that seems like a little bit less buggy. You have more of a critical mass of users. You might have begun to generate some sort of revenue. If you're Series A, then we shouldn't really have to worry about product risk anymore. We have some semblance of a business model that's actually working. Maybe it's hit a certain kind of like threshold of like 100,000 a month in recurring revenue, a million dollars a year in revenue if you're Series B. You know, so, so this is the idea. I think like I wouldn't be obsessed about like the numbers because you're right, they change. The general concept is like how much risk is attached to the company. Is it super risky where it's like, it seems like a little more than an idea and two people in a garage? Does it start to have like a product that's kind of something we can really work with and some, you know, material number of users that we can start to de develop insights from? Does it have like a business model that's generated a material amount of cash? Is it now kind of more or less consolidated in the market? And now it's really a question of just expanding that model and 
into a bunch of different markets. I think those are the way that you should think about different stages. And founders have to just realize, you know, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, okay, so for the next year or two, 18 months to two years, I'm going to focus on surpassing that pre-seed model. I'm going to build my product. I'm going to have those users. I'm going to start to monetize in the seed stage. I've built the product. This is the product. Now I have a beta version, not just an alpha version. It's no longer an MVP, a minimum viable product. I'm starting to have like real users, real engagement. And then after that, it just keeps getting less and less risky. I start to have more and more data. And after I think about series A, that's when the investor should have like historical data. So that's when they start to look at, okay, so let me understand your revenue model. Let me understand your, you know, they can look at real numbers as opposed to like those prior stages where tech stars invest, where there's still not really enough numbers to make any sort of educated calculations. It's just pure risk and belief in the company and the founder and some vision, if that makes any sense. It makes a ton of sense and so much sense that I think we need to go a little bit deeper on you. Mm. And what I mean by that is you spent, as you mentioned earlier, some time overseas, had some of those experiences. And one of the things that I think we should convey in this conversation is the impact that getting outside your home country had on you. So could you talk about some of those experiences that you had and how they impact you? And if you remove that time, are you a different MD and founder? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I think like, you know, for me, a big part of leaving the U.S. was like, you know, I think last week or whatever, they passed the whole like same sex thing. Like when I was at Yale, I was in the closet. And so there was this whole focus on, okay, so you have like super confident Gary who has this like super big secret. And so if that secret comes out, then all that Gary has like worked for is going to go down the drain. So I think like that was the impetus for me to go to Europe, right? Which was like, we can't be our real self in America because in this generation where they think all of that just means like HIV and pedophilia and it's borderline illegal, this is not a context in which you're going to be allowed to be you, right? And Europe might be somehow more amenable to that, especially this is pre-internet. So I didn't even know that you could have like, you know, there were going to be social media and stuff like that. We have like pictures that will last forever. So it was kind of like, that was my thought process. And I think like the other thing about going to Europe was, even though I think the UK has its struggles, Spain, definitely, I didn't feel like going back to the Jamaica experience where I felt like I was black without being African-American black. Because I think like African-American black is really tinged with slavery, right? And the kind of negative stereotypes and assumptions that let's call it the system still assumes about people about black people. I'm not saying people call it, about black people in particular that we are essentially the bottom of the social ladder and going back to the Charles Murray thing that we're almost genetically inferior we're like a little bit above apes that's kind of like what's really going on in the background of America it's like I think a lot of people just think that we're apes you know we're a little bit more than animals and so when some of us can like speak well or do well in school it's almost like some sort of like aberration that needs to be explained whereas when I went to Europe you know especially in Spain where they didn't seem to have the same history of slavery right because they didn't really engage in the slave trade the same way like like the Brits and maybe like the Dutch and some of these other cultures do like so it was like you know their concern was more with like the Latinos and so I, I was like oh, this must be what it feels like to be white where you can just walk into a room and like not everything is presumed about you. Like you can actually explain who you are without all of these presumptions, you know? 
And on top of it, in Spain, the presumption is I'm an American. They kept saying Harvard because they didn't really differentiate between Harvard and Yale. But like, they kept saying, oh, that's the American from Harvard. And I was like, not only am I not some sort of slave descendant, but I'm elite. This is like a very new experience. Because I feel like even in America, having gone to Yale, there's still always the, but how'd you get in? By taking tests and doing really well. That's why I always say man can modify beta kappa because I'm like, Yale doesn't do affirmative action for grades. You know what I mean? I had to bust my ass, like be the top, like in that Paul Fremer class where I got a top grade as a freshman in a senior junior seminar, right? But if you say that to people, you say you went to Yale, they automatically assume like you're some sort of like affirmative action case here. No, in, in, the, in the US, I didn't really, sorry, in Spain, I didn't have that presumption. And it was so liberating to just be like me, you know, and have people think like I could actually be smart and successful. And then I think in London, it was more of that, but not the same extent. I think like, again, I think like when I was hanging out with like Prince Andrew and that sort of a crowd, when they were more international, so they really respected Yale and all those sorts of things. But I would say like the class below that, like I think that they kind of were like, well, he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. He didn't go to St. Paul's. He's not a noble. So they, they saw me as less than them. So I think like kind of seeing like how power defines itself in different contexts. And it's not always about race. And race can be interpreted differently in different contexts. In some ways, that was like liberating, right? Because I think like being in America, you feel it sometimes like this like imposition that's just kind of like definitional and existential. And I realized the definitions are very kind of like subjective and almost place-based. And so I don't have to feel like that definition is of me. That definition is the limitation of the people who haven't traveled, if that makes any sense, right? That they don't know enough about the world or the history of the world or how people in different contexts view people differently so that like, I'm not going to let them define me. I can define myself. And that's, I think, like what traveling was really useful in terms of doing. I want to stay on this topic for a little bit because I think it's an important one. Yes, we're talking about startups and venture capital, but we're also talking about your sense of self and excellence and you can do whatever you want with that, whether it's startup life or something else. You brought up a good point because what you're saying resonates with me. Uh, I guess in in your vernacular, I'm an African-American, Black American, however you worded it, because, you know, my family, you know, four or five generations here. Right. And I do agree with you that the way you think about the world and to reveal a little bit more about my experience so we can talk about tactics and strategies that you use to overcome that. You know, I grew up in North Little Rock, Arkansas, uh, and I went to a high school that was majority black. And then I'm, even though most of my classes were not, and then I moved to East Texas and it was 90% white in a rural part of Texas. Then I go to Howard, majority black, overwhelmingly. Then I go to Cambridge where I did not meet another African American student who was a male. While I was there, um, I, one of my classmates was was a black woman from from Harvard, but no other black American males who were there. Then I go to Harvard Law, and I think there were fifty five of us in a class of five eighty. And my question for you is: Have you had experiences? It sounds like you have, where you were the only black person in the room, and if so, how did you deal with creating space for yourself? Because many of the folks listening to this right now have either already dealt with that, or they will the further up they go, and they're going to encounter multiple Black people along the way who navigate that space differently. So could you just talk about that? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, I think I'm usually, you know, because this is like an honest conversation, 
I'm actually more comfortable being the only one than not being because that's always been my experience, right? Like, so, you know, when I went to high school, so junior high school and, and elementary school, that was majority black. My parents put us in a, a private school, Our Savior Lutheran, but it was mostly black people in, in the Bronx. Then I went to Bronx Science and it was like the first time I met like white people. I'm like, there are a whole bunch of different types of white people. Then I got like, I met some Asians and I was like, oh my God, like a whole bunch of different Asians. So it was like, to me, it was eye-opening in a lot of ways to just see all these different groups. But then the thing is, because I had like, I'm gonna call it my Jamaican mentality, I was just like, okay, so, you know, whenever I go into a room, I'm like, okay, so what do you need to do in here? That's always like my thing. I'm like, I'm like, okay, what do I need to do in here? And then one day we saw this like, at, you know, in the school, it must've been like the first or second week and they were like debate team. And I was like, oh, I think I want to be a lawyer. And so I need to learn how to debate. And so I went and I practiced and I told my best friend, you're coming with me because I didn't want to go by myself. And he still says it to this day. And that's how we joined the debate team. And then it turns out like I was good at debate. So it's like, but then there weren't that many black women in the debate team, but then the black people that there were are still my best friends. You know, my best friend, one of my best friends, Alex, then went to like Harvard, Stanford. So it's like, we were always kind of like the only ones in the room. But I think like the thing is, I think about it in two ways. One, the fact that you're all the only one in the room doesn't mean that you have to enjoy being the only one in the room. So part of the way I got to teach at Yale Law School is apparently when I was at Yale Law School, I was the only black person from my year that made it onto Law Journal I made onto Law Journal two ways, because there are two ways to get on Law Journal, at least there were. One is you can write a student note. So I wrote a student note that was published, been cited 300 times or 200 times, I can't remember what it is, so did really well. And then I also passed a test. And, but the thing is like no one else was getting onto Law, Law Journal that was black either way. So then a lot of kids came up to me, blacks, Asians, Latinos, and were like, how did you do it? And then I started helping them out. And then it turns out like these folks are not some of my best friends, and I'm like, why are you guys so loyal to me? And they're like, don't you remember you helped us out when we asked? And I was like, I don't remember that. Like, you know what I mean? Because so, I'm not thinking that way. I'm just thinking, I don't need to be the only one in the room to feel valuable. You know what I mean? Like, I always feel like if I'm the only one in the room, I need to figure out, okay, so how do we make the room more diverse? It was the same thing that happened at Wira, where I was like, I'm the only one here. And I kept saying, where are the other people? And I went to look for them. And then I brought them in on my team. And then I brought them in as my founders. I invested in them. And then I did founder tribes because I was like, this... Uh, annoys me that like they're not more there's not more diversity then when i saw the tech stars opportunity and they said it's a focus on unrepresented founders i'm like this is my calling I, it's like for me my role in life is it's okay if i'm the first or the only as long as that's not where it ends if it ends with my only with my being the only then i failed so my job is to like open up the door for as many people as possible so that like Someday, hopefully, they remember me, right? That's going to be my legacy, opening up the doors. And hopefully, with Founder Tribes becoming a billionaire and with Techstars having Carrie and all these companies that ultimately super rich. But I think legacy is not about money. If I had just wanted money, I would have saved an associate at one of the law firms. It's about like building a life that actually matters and that you're doing something that you care about. And the thing that I care most about is like making sure I'm not the only one in the room. Okay. 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 Talk to us about how you do that and a little more context on this question. When you are working with, whether they're at Yale Law School or otherwise, founders to sort of learn how to navigate this new space, are you having compassion and meeting them where they are? Are you sort of the drill sergeant and saying, no, this is the standard and I'm going to beat it into you because I love you? How do you connect with people and then prepare them to be able to compete or even dominate at a high level? It's a good question and my answer might be controversial. You know, I'm looking for people with like raw talent and desire. 
I'm looking for like the Serena Williams or the Venus Williams that's playing tennis in Compton, but you can see that like they really are hungry. Like it's not my job to convince someone that doesn't have the desire that they should have it. That's not me. And I'm not really interested in that if I'm completely honest. It's really about kind of finding other folks who should be allowed to be brilliant. They should be allowed to show people how brilliant they are, but there's some sort of structural or other reason that's preventing them. And if I can help them because of whatever access I've been given to remove that, then I will, right? But I am not here to convince people who don't have the desire that they should have it. What if it's the opposite? What if they're hyper arrogant and, you know, super, you know, confident, maybe overly so, and they maybe don't have it to back it up, but they have that desire is there. Like, how do you deal with that too? Because in some contexts that might be discouraged and seen in the same way that it was to you, you're doing too much, stay in your place. How do you balance those those elements? In that sense, it's really if I can find some sort of connection with the person. So there was actually an incident, not an incident, like a, an example <laughs> where like I feel, you know, and again, I'm speaking always super honestly, like I'm trying to help someone and I don't mean help in a way that sounds condescending, right? Um, let's say maybe I'm just older, I've been through the game before, like I see things, I'm like giving advice and I'm like, listen, people see you as very aggressive and even me, you come across as really hard. If you could, because the name of the game in these circles to go back to kind of the example of what that VC said is people need to feel comfortable with you, right? If they're going to invest in you, it's a relationship that's going to last like 10, 15 years. They need to trust you, like you. And so the presumption is that they can know and like people that they went to school with, people that belong to the same race, country club, whatever the case may be. Birds of a feather flock together. You're a bird that looks a little different. You have to try and make the other person feel comfortable. Now, that might seem like a kind of like unfair task or obligation, but it is what it is because they have the power and you don't. So I feel like maybe traveling in all these different places and seeing the way that power always needs to feel comfortable. How did I meet Prince Andrew? You know, it was like, it was, you know, we were doing an event and there were all of these like elite uh, Brits. And, you know, they were, like, really positioning, oh, Prince Andrew, this is what we're going to do. Prince Andrew and his team, blah, 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 blah. And I just kept quiet and just was really nice to everyone. At the end, I was like, hey, I see you guys already have that covered, but, like, wouldn't it be really cool if Prince Andrew did an after party? I was like, we can call the party from old York to New York, right? We're going to make it, like, about, like, hip-hop, and I'm going to put it in my venue, and we're going to pay for it. And then his team came, and they had a good time, and that was how we became friends. Right? Because I just sat back and I observed how everyone else, and I could see that they weren't paying what I would consider to be due respect to the team. And so I focused on building relationships with the team. And then the team, and then that's how I built loyalty because they realized I wasn't trying to get something from them. I was offering something and I was trying to be observant and figuring out like what it was that they needed. And that was the basis of a relationship. So I treat everything like a relationship with someone that I'd like to be friends with, not asking at the beginning, trying to figure out like how it can be useful and then making sure that they know that I'm not just a user. I'm not here to kind of like get something from you quickly and then hit it and leave. Like, no, I'm here for the long run. And even if you never gave me anything, like I would still be your friend, right? Of course, at some point down the line, like you would hope that you would have, but how did uh, my parents be Prince Andrew? Because his team were like, oh, what are you doing for the holidays? And I was like, oh, you know, for, it was Easter. I'm going with my parents, you know, we could do a yearly trip. This is before I bought a property. And we go around the world to like different cities and they're like, oh, where are you going to go? And I was like, Asia. And they're like, oh, well, we're going to be in Asia. Why don't you make it coincide with them? We're there. And I was like, okay. And so we went and I didn't know that he was going to come. 
And then all of a sudden, like, we're in China and um, Shenzhen, big hall, everyone's speaking in Chinese with that little interpreter things, you know, kind of like in your ear or whatever. A lot of TV, a lot of politicians. And then all of a sudden, Prince Andrew's leaving and he comes and he's like, Gary, what are you doing here? And I think my mother and my partner were just like, what the hell? He really does know him. Because my mother had been invited to the garden party. So we went to the garden party where they invite, you can bring one guest and the queen was there. And then we were part of Prince Andrew's like kind of group. So we were at the very front. And so we were like literally next to the queen. And then Princess Beatrice came and spoke to us because we were part of Prince Andrew's party. There were only like a handful of us. And then when Prince Andrew himself came and said to my mother, oh, so I heard that you're going to Asia. And my mother was like, yeah. And so my mother and father, he said, oh, and so to my father, talked to my partner. And it was like five minutes and all the Chinese people were like, you know, in China, like, who the hell are those folks? Maybe there's some African princes. This is like Wakanda, what's going on? You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, and so my, my mother to this day is like, I don't care what anybody says about Prince Andrew. I just remember that he stopped and he spoke to me and that made me feel good. And I was like, but that was just building on a relationship where it was like, I didn't ask for anything. I never imposed. I just made it like be known that I could be useful. And that was it. And then people start to offer things to you um, because they trust you. So what I would say to founders that kind of want to be aggressive is focus on relationship building. Like white people aren't inherently evil, right? They just don't know you. They don't trust you. Maybe they think you belong to a different tribe. If you went to the same school as a white person, like you went to Harvard, I went to Yale, you'll realize they're cool. They just don't have a reason to trust you if they don't know you. They also may not trust like a Republican if they're a Democrat. They may not trust someone who's from Texas if they're from New York. There are lots of reasons that we choose not to trust other people. Obviously, race is one of the most kind of difficult because it comes with like a lot of history and baggage and ideology, but there are lots of reasons that people don't choose to be friends with other people. Your job is to make the other person feel kind of comfortable enough to want to invite you into their inner sanctum to give you those opportunities that they only give to their best friends. And I was really surprised because I was like, Prince Andrew, there are people here who went to Oxford, Cambridge, these fancy people, they're all kissing your butt. But that wasn't what they wanted. And I was smart enough to figure out that's not what they wanted. They wanted something else. And I decided to be the person to deliver that. And that's what created this relationship for six years. Prince Andrew's private secretary is one of my advisors on Founder Traps. Yeah. That's fantastic. And truly in the spirit of Techstars, give first. So we're coming up on the end of this interview. Just a handful of questions mm -hmm. left. Uh, it's been a great conversation. It really has um, gotten a chance to learn a lot more about you. This is our longest conversation, <laughs> even though we met. I'll say this before getting into the next query is uh, I guess we met sort of virtually and ended up convening. Well, you convene the whole you know space it mm -hmm. seemed for the HBCU conference where a lot of folks were able to get some good game mm -hmm. uh, in a variety of ways. So I'm grateful for that. We like to ask people about their experience in art. Mm -hmm. A lot of people talk about music, but you are an eclectic and I don't want to say well-renowned, but it seems that way based on the early conversations <laughs> about it, like a budding art collector. So talk about maybe what got your start there. And if that gives you any inspiration or any type of energetic boost when it comes to the work that you do. I mean, we're sitting here where the walls are blank. Hopefully next time it will be full. What is that going to do for you? Yeah, no, it's kind of like if I had the talent, I'd be an artist. I mean, that's always the way I've kind of felt. Like a singer, dancer, like I love Beyonce. Beyonce is kind of like, for me, I love the ability to just like move people, to make people feel something. And I like the way that she can do that consistently by just thinking through, I think artists are entrepreneurs. 
I mean, that's always been for me, like the thing is like when you look at an artist, they're basically like a freelance worker. And then if the, the most successful artists have to build up entire companies around them, right? And they have to figure out the business model. They have multiple income streams. So I think like for me, art is pure entrepreneurship in some senses. But then when you talk specifically about kind of like visual arts and like collecting kind of like paintings and stuff like that, like I think for me, it stems out of the same curiosity, right? Which is I'm like, oh, so where were black people or gay people or women in the 1700s and the 1800s, right? The same way I'm like, so why are we locked out now? I'm like, so were we locked out then too? And then if I can find images where it looks like we were locked out, but someone saw us, I like really connected those, right? Because I think like a lot of it's just about being seen and feel like you're being valued. And so the art that I collect is basically of women, mostly black people, and also LGBT folks, that for some reason it looks like they were seen by an artist and that something is being captured by that. And like, yeah, probably like when I come home, it makes me feel really happy to kind of think that I'm part of like a larger tradition of people who've been not seen, but seen, right? I always think about it like my little grain of sand, people are gonna forget about in like in a hundred years, maybe even in 10 years after I'm dead. But like, yeah, hopefully I'm participating in a larger tradition of like making the world a better place. I feel like that's it. And making a lot of money. Cause I think like a lot of times as a black man, I have to always say this, like whenever you say, I want to make the world a better place. Like investors are never like, oh, your social impact. I'm like, no, I want to make the better world a better place. And part of that is by becoming really rich. Because I feel like the problem that minority, I think there was uh, in my class, you know, I, was, I had to kind of come up with like a whole bunch of like the syllabus or whatever, like the, the, the articles. And there was one by Al Gore, and I think it was The Atlantic, looking at like the stuff that he's done since he's been, since he left the vice presidency, he ran for president, whatever. And he's now a venture capitalist. And they were asking, so how did that happen? He's like, it turns out that in a capitalist system, the key to having influence is having capital. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. So I feel like when people are like, oh, are you impact or are you a capitalist? Both. As long as we're in a capitalist system, the only way I can have influence is by having a lot of money. And I'm trying to have a lot of money and a lot of influence. That sounds good. We can skip the whole, do you want to be a millionaire question? <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a billionaire. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so the last, well, penultimate question that we'll ask you, and you may have kind of covered this already, but just for the recency effect, we want to get it from you again. Mm -hmm. What is the most valuable thing that you provide to the founders who come into your fold, whether that be through founder tribes or tech stars, what's the most valuable thing that you're providing to people that they get? from being connected with you. Yeah, no, so I'll say it super simply. The number one or number, the two things that founders need to have that prevent them from getting to the next level, they need access to social capital. That means people who can open doors, people who can make someone else feel comfortable with you because they're willing to vouch for you. So in the world of entrepreneurship, that's the warm intro, that's all of that sort of stuff. So we can be that warm intro. Like if you get into Techstars, probably only YC has a stronger brand where, you know, we think of ourselves as like the Harvard and Yale, right? Like, if you get into tech stars, that means a lot of people say, okay, someone's vouched for them that we actually value, so let's take a serious look at these folks. So that's it. And then also the kind of mentor and other network, especially having JP Morgan as kind of a partner, these are a lot of powerful brands that kind of mean that people aren't going to see you as like random, you know, Joe Blog by yourself in a garage eating ramen noodle. Now all of a sudden, it's kind of like getting into Harvard or Yale or Stanford. Now all of a sudden people are like, oh, wow. Um, we need to take a second look at that person. That's where people go to recruit. 
that's where people look, go to look for a potential investment options. So that's number one, just the brand and the networks that we can open up. And number two, I'm really focusing on getting black people money. Blacks, Latinos, and the other groups that are focusing on, Pacific Islander and Native Americans. So I'm focusing the whole thing on introducing you to investors. If you can do that by yourself, you don't need me. The reality is that most entrepreneurs do not have those connections. So maybe what we're doing could be useful. I certainly think so. <laughs> uh, and I would encourage all of you to just check them out. But you will be able to find them, generally speaking, from an online search. But how do you get in touch with Gary? So this is the last question, the one that we sort of promised. Uh, if you're listening to this right now and you're really in sync with what Gary has been speaking about, both from an identity perspective, because we actually did go fairly deep mm -hmm. on sort of the essence of Gary Stewart. So that might be a draw as well. But if you're looking to just connect with him, uh, find time on his calendar if you have it. I know you're getting busier and busier these days, but how can people stay connected with you? Both follow you. Where do you drop your content? And then also if people want to reach out to you and get a response, if they say, hey, listen to you on the Diverse Tech Founders podcast, what is the most practical and efficient way for them to do that? Yeah, so the most practical way is just send me an email, Gary, G-A-R-Y, so like Gary Cooper, dot Stewart, S-T-E-W-A-R-T, like Jimmy Stewart, at techstars.com. So first name dot last name at techstars.com, right? Um, that's the easiest way. Send me an email. Like what I usually do with founders, I'm like, okay, well, let's get 15 minutes to chat. Please have like a three minute pitch ready. And then what I'll do with my team is give you feedback on the pitch and, you know, kind of like potential next steps. We are actively looking for companies to invest in. So that means that you have even more of an incentive potentially to reach out so that we can have that initial conversation. But I would say gary.stewart at techstars.com is the easiest way to reach out to me. And then secondarily, like um, LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. That's where I drop the content. So also happy to engage there as well, even though I don't read the messages there as much. Simply brilliant. And my, 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 have I enjoyed this conversation on so many different levels. Thank you so much for this conversation and for dropping the gems that you did, including kind of demystifying a lot of elements in, in startup culture in VC. But with that, we are going to leave you with the final words. Yeah, no, I would just go back to like what my aunt said. Just remember you're as good as any, better than many, and inferior to none. Like when I look at a lot of the founders who are getting funded, sometimes it's infuriating because you're like, they're not better than the founders that come from black backgrounds or female backgrounds or Latino backgrounds. I think the only thing that they do better is that they come at it with more confidence and they play the game a little bit better. So they know the rules of the game, so they at least sound the part. When you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find that there are lots of like black and Latino and female founders that have more traction or uh, more interesting business models. The only thing is that they're not playing the game well enough and they're not exuding the confidence enough because confidence is really important. Remember, venture and, and this kind of game is really about, can this person actually win Wimbledon? Right? Like, can the one person is going to win? Can we find that one person that's going to win? A precondition to winning is that you have to believe that you can win. And any sort of doubt there or kind of, at least everyone has doubt, right? Everyone. Beyonce has doubt before she goes on the stage. But when you get on the stage, perform like you're Beyonce, hit the ball like you're Serena Williams, like, that's what you need to be able to do. So I think, like, that's my last bit of advice to you. Like, believe in yourself. Know that you can win. Know that there's no one else out there that's better than you necessarily just because they have different factors. But if you don't express that and if you don't believe it, then it's not going to happen. Spoken like a true Yelly. You're making the <laughs> Bulldogs proud. And we've enjoyed you. 
Big Money Gary. <laughs> With that, we will bid you adieu. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.